screen. Well, hey, good morning and welcome to Christ Church. It's so good for us to be together in worship this morning. My name is Mike. I'm on the pastoral team here at Christ Church. And it's so good for us to be in worship. Whether you're in the room here in West, whether you're joining us in East, what's up, East? Uh, or if you're joining us online this morning, it's just good for us to be praising God and be giving thanks for the gifts that he gives us every single day. As Daniel mentioned, and hopefully it hasn't escaped you, this upcoming Thursday is Thanksgiving, which is this amazing time that we get to get together with loved ones, with friends, family, to celebrate the gifts that God has given us each and every year. And especially as Christians, we want to take this time to say thanks to God for all the amazing ways that we have been blessed and we've been given so much. <clears throat> and I love Thanksgiving. It is an awesome reminder to me of the ways that I don't have to worry about food or clothing or the roof over my head because God has provided those things for me and for my family and for my neighbors, uh, and it's amazing. But I don't know if you're like me, that that spirit of thanksgiving, that sense of contentment and gratefulness that I feel on, the, on this Thursday coming up, it's really fleeting. And that Come Monday of the next week, I am back to thinking about all of those things that make me anxious, of all the things I have to get done at work and all the things that I need to get done for school and all the things that are going on in my family with my kids as they're growing up. And all of those things, I start to lose that sense of gratitude and thankfulness. And I'm like, oh God, can you just keep helping me out here for a second? Like I could really use it. And I wonder why that is. Why is that sense of thanksgiving and gratitude, why is it so fleeting? Why does it fade so quickly? I know one of the things that helps me in my life is to have a robust theology of enough. And a theology of enough is really simple. It's really to say that the things that God has already given me is sufficient. And that it's good. And that I'm not left in a state of anxiety about not having enough. Nor am I so focused on getting more and more and more stuff that that takes my attention and focus away from the important things in life. But I think that it's really hard to take on this permanent attitude of thanksgiving, this permanent attitude of gratitude that comes to us on Thanksgiving, but it goes away so quickly. And I think there's two big worldly myths that get in the way when it comes to having this deep appreciation for what God has given us. The things of this world that tear us and our tears are focus away from knowing that God has provided enough for us. And the first one is this myth of scarcity. And I think 
Many of us who have lived here in America the past two years in a time of COVID, many of us have experienced scarcity, some of us even for the very first time, as we've not always had access to the abundance that our country has so lavishly given us. I know that when my grandchildren ask me to tell them the story of the time I lived through a pandemic, I won't forget to tell the funny story of how there was about two months when every shelf of every store looked like this, but only in the toilet paper aisle. And this is especially bizarre because there was nothing inherent about COVID-19 that gave you irritable bowels and you needed more and more toilet paper. But it was crazy. You couldn't find toilet paper anywhere. And the thing is that it wasn't that there wasn't enough for everybody to have some. But somebody had got it in their head that there wasn't going to be enough. And that idea of scarcity got implanted in their head and they said, well, you know, here's enough, but wouldn't it be better if I was a little bit safe and I had just a little bit more? And then all of a sudden, somebody who wasn't initially scared about running out of toilet paper sees somebody with their grocery cart full of toilet paper, and they're like, oh, no, there's not going to be enough left for me if I don't get a bunch of toilet paper, too. And that domino effect, that cascading effect, got us to a point where this happened. This. And I think in the same way that it was true back then that there was enough toilet paper for everyone, and that our fear of scarcity actually caused the scarcity itself, I think we know as Christians that God didn't make too many people and not enough stuff. We worship a God who created this entire world out of absolutely nothing. And when his people were in need in the wilderness back in ancient Israel, he gave them manna from heaven. And Jesus, during his time in ministry, when there was a crowd that was hungry with 5,000 people, he fed them with five loaves of bread and two fish. We worship a God of abundance who has made enough stuff for everyone. And that's easy for us to think about but we still experience that sense of scarcity in our lives in part because God made enough for everyone's need but not enough for everyone's greed. God made enough for everyone's need but not enough for everyone's greed. And so even though we live in a world that is abundantly provided for by God, we still have these moments in which we feel like we are left without because of the way other people don't have that trust in God to provide for them. But there's another myth. There's another thing that gets in a way of us having this theology of enough. And that's this myth that more is always better. That if one of something is good, then two must be better, right? And if two of something is good, then five of it must be even better than that. And so on and so forth until we have accumulated and accumulated all of this stuff. 
And so this week might be Thanksgiving, but when I think of this myth that the more, that more is always better, I think of another holiday that just happened, uh, Halloween. So this is my family. Um, this is my two-year-old Hannah, who is dressed as elephant, and my daughter Bethany, who's dressed as piggy. I'm dressed as a pigeon, and my wife is dressed as a little duckling. Um, and we had fun. This was the first time that I got to take my two-year-old out trick-or-treating, and it was a blast. Uh, she was super apprehensive going up to that first doorstep because uh, stranger danger, right? Uh, Two-year-olds, like, that's an anxious thing. But then as soon as she found out that by going up and knocking on somebody's door, she got candy, oh, it was game over. She was all in. She's like, this is great. Let's do it again. Now, me as a dad and a first-time Halloween dad, I was like, okay, we need to have a strategy about this because if my daughter knows that she can just get free candy by going up to people's doors tonight, um, it very easily could end up looking like this in her little two-year-old bucket. And that's not what we wanted. So I cut her off at about 12 houses and we said, that's enough. Because for my two-year-old who doesn't understand that more isn't always better, if this was in her life, if this giant stack of candy was available to her, then very easily one candy could be two candies and two could be five and five could be ten. And all of a sudden, I have this two-year-old with a tummy ache and a diaper full of milk duds, and then nobody's happy. But the thing is, even if there are things to us as adults that are obvious that more is not always better, that more candy and sweets isn't always better. More alcohol is not always better. More romantic partners is not always better. We somehow find the way in the midst of our own brokenness that we make exceptions for things. That that might work for candy and alcohol and romantic partners, but you know, you can never have too much money, right? You can never have too much clothing, too many cars, too many houses. What could be wrong with having more and more and more of that? But I think in the same way that we physically feel the unhealthiness within us when we have too many things that are sweet or we have too much alcohol, excess of anything even of good things, creates a spiritual unhealthiness. As we strive again and again to have more and more, and that becomes the focus of our lives and not the focus on God or a focus on the people around us. And so if this sense of excess, and we know that hoarding is unhealthy for ourselves and it hurts ourselves and hurts our neighbors, then what? How do we get past this sense? Well, this is where we need our theology of enough. This constant attitude of graciousness and gratefulness for what God has done in our lives. And this sense that what God has already given us is sufficient. Now, I think the perfect place in Scripture where this thought is exemplified is from Proverbs 30. 
And even though it's in Proverbs, it reads more like a prayer. And I think that that is fantastic because this is a prayer that I try to hold within myself as well. Proverbs 30 says, Oh God, I beg two favors from you. Let me have them before I die. First, help me never to tell a lie. And second, give me neither poverty nor riches. I think that's an incredible prayer because I think maybe at some point in all of our lives we've been like, God, don't make me too poor. I don't want to be broke. But I don't know how many people have been like, God, don't make me too rich. That's not good either. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're always praying like, hey, God, you can give us a little bit more blessing. That would be all right. A little bit more of this, a little bit more of that. It's all good. And so this prayer becomes so powerful because the author of this proverb says, give me just enough to satisfy my needs. Knowing that there's this healthy balance in relationship with God when we have just enough. But the author of this proverb is not content to just have this simple platitude, but this author of this proverb understands why. He has a very distinct reason for praying like this. And it's because of this. He says, For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Did you catch that? For if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Because we know as human beings, we often get very proud of our own accomplishments. And it's very easy for us if we become wealthy and we have more than enough to say, to justify it to ourselves and say, well, I deserve this. I worked hard for my money. And this is just God blessing me for my faithfulness. And that's why I have more than enough. But there's a danger in this. And this danger is that we might come to think of ourselves as the source of these blessings and not God. And in some ways to forget that it is God who is behind every good thing in our life. And hold on to this because it's going to come back in a second. But then the last line in this verse says, And if I am too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. The theme in this proverb is that the author understands that our relationship with God can be easily severed if we have too little or too much. And so in the wonderful wisdom, this author is able to say, this person who's praying is able to say, just enough, please. Now, we need to take just a little bit of a side, a little bit of a historical aside, because if you're someone who maybe knows a little bit about Scripture, you might be thinking, man, Proverbs, 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 Proverbs. Wasn't that written by King Solomon? And wasn't he, like, really, like, ridiculously filthy rich? This would be a really weird proverb for him to write, someone who was a king and had all the wealth and money in the entire world. Well, you would be very astute, but also this proverb was not written by King Solomon. This proverb was written by Aker, Agur, son of Jacob. And even though King Solomon wrote, in his wisdom, 
wrote the first 29 psalms, or some of the psalms came from his courts. They were popular sayings while he was king. The first 29 are dedicated to Solomon. But this 30th proverb is written by Agur. And so King Solomon is really fascinating because he was king of Israel. He was the son of King David. And he once bragged that he collected 666 talents of gold per year. And I don't know how good your uh, ancient currency uh, calculations are, but I'll help you out. This is in the hundreds of millions of dollars a year just in gold alone. And that's not counting other tributes. So King Solomon, he's raking it in. And if that wasn't excessive enough, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 700 wives and 300 concubines, which by my estimation is like 300 concubines and 699 wives too many. But Agur, on the other hand, his name means gatherer, and he was probably a nomad. We know that he was from the city or the town or the area of Massa, which is east of Israel, but west of Persia. And he was not from one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it's fascinating that this guy who was not ethnically Jewish, who didn't live in Israel, had this proverb and this prayer that became so important to the Jewish people that they ended up including it in their holy scriptures. And I think I understand a little bit why. Why that is that they included this. Because there is this wisdom that Agur sees from his vantage point. That as someone who is not super wealthy, but probably not broke either, that is situated in between two powerful kingdoms where there is wealth in excess, he saw that kingdom, uh, King Solomon, for all of his wisdom, had some blind spots. That there were some blind spots to his wisdom, and that this caused trouble in his relationship with God and with other people. Because it's a part of King Solomon's story that eventually he marries some foreign wives, and those wives insist on worshiping their gods right alongside Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so, we get idols that start getting put in the temple and Asherah poles and other forms of worship that take away the focus from God. And so that's what Agur sees when he looks west into Israel. But when he looks east into Persia, the Persian kings are fascinating as well because as they start to build empires of Assyria and Babylon, their wealth and power become so great that they become convinced that they are gods themselves. And so Agur is very easily able to see the ways in which wealth can take away our focus on God. But from his vantage point, being in the wilderness in between these two great kingdoms, he also probably encountered thieves and bandits, people who were left out of the prosperity of the empire because these kings were collecting so much wealth and centralizing it in the middle of their kingdoms. And so you had these people out of desperation of not having enough who had to resort to stealing just to meet their basic needs. And so Agur has this incredibly unique vantage point 
in which he is clearly able to see the ways in which wealth corrupts, but also not having enough severs us from our neighbor and causes us to do things that dishonor God. And so Agar is able to recognize that what people are doing, both wealthy and poor, is that they begin serving money. That all of their goals and their actions are in line with trying to accumulate more and more money. And every motivation that they acquire is how can I get more and more wealth? Which is where Jesus comes in. And Jesus has something to say about that mentality. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Let me say that again. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. And when all of our motivation gets poured into getting money and not honoring God, then we become servants and slaves to money and wealth, and we begin to forget who God is. And so when you reflect on your own life and your own stuff, your own possessions, your own ways that you interact with money, you got to ask yourself to this. Do you own money, or does your money own you? Are you enslaved or captured by the stuff that you have? Is it negatively affecting your relationship with God or other people? Jesus continues on that after he says that, he says, look, this is why I tell you not to worry, to be so caught up in gaining more and more stuff. He says, I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Just look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? And that's the thing that we can miss out on. Is not trusting that God loves us enough to provide for us. That our anxiety about not having enough usually comes from not understanding that God wants to provide for us. Because this is what is true. God loves you too much to leave you with not enough. That the God who created this world, who has provided for his people over and over again, he's not going to leave you with less than enough, with less than what you need. And that we can ask God for what we need when we are in need. And God in his love provides for us. Now if you're a parent, you understand this principle. And Jesus capitalizes on it by saying, Parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? 
Of course not. So if you sinful and broken people, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? And so it's with this that we trust that God has and will continue to give us enough. That God already has provided and will continue to provide for every need that we could possibly need. But sometimes because of hoarding and scarcity, sometimes we're left with not enough and that's when we can go to God and we can ask for what we need. Now, as we talk about this, I want you to think, what does it mean for your life? What would having a theology of enough, this permanent attitude of gratefulness and thanksgiving, what could it do in your life? That as you reflect on what it is you have in your relationship with God this week, if you find yourself in an earnest place where you say, God, I don't think that I have enough. My challenge for you is this. It is okay to pray to God and ask God for the things that you need, and God, as a loving parent, will not deny you. That God will look for ways to bless you and make sure that you have enough. Now, if you reflect on your life this week and you say, yeah, I do have just enough. I have just enough and it is good. Then the challenge for you this week is to say, how can I make this a permanent attitude? How can I take this sense of thanksgiving and bring it with me every single day and not let the anxieties of the world overtake me? But how can I more fully trust God each and every day? But if you reflect on your life and you say, wow, I... I think that I have more than enough. Then the challenge for you is to look at your life and say, what ways is God calling me to share what I have with those who don't have enough? We'll spend more time talking about that next week. But for now, amen, good? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have given us enough, that you have provided for our every need, and that you have been good and gracious in all circumstances. God, we are sorry for the ways in which we have not trusted you. We're sorry for the ways in which we have hoarded things and kept them from our neighbors and our loved ones. God, we are sorry for the ways in which we have harmed one another and forgotten who you are in pursuit of wealth and stuff. God, I ask that you intercede powerfully in our lives, that you might help us consistently remember you and remember the people around us so that we might love you more fully and love the people around us more fully. I ask that you help us not live in a state of anxiety, but remind us continually that you are good, that you provide, and that you, and you alone, 
are enough. God, we hold all of these things and we lift them up to you in your holy name. Amen.